Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Tonight we're looking at Numbers chapters 29 and 30. I'd planned for chapter 31 as well, but that would take us quite a bit to accomplish all that. We'll see how it goes, but at least 29 and 30 tonight. We've been working our way on Wednesday evenings since the beginning of last year through the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and getting pretty close to finishing out the book of Numbers. And uh, it's been a fun study to go through these passages again. Tonight we're going to get into a portion of Scripture that deals with some of the wars that begin to take place with the nation of Israel. God will command the nation of Israel. Actually, that might be 31. Let me see. Yes. Uh, Commands the nation of Israel to go to battle. So, you know, we may get to that tonight. We may get to it next week. But um, really learning about how God was forming this nation into a people, preparing them to enter into the promised land. For quite a while here in the book of Numbers, they have been camped on the east side of the Jordan River across from the city of Jericho. Once they enter into the promised land, Jericho will be the first city that they take and they won't do anything but take the spoil. God will cause the walls of Jericho as we will learn about in the book of Joshua to come tumbling down just by the people marching around the city for seven days once a day for six days and then on the seventh day going around the city for seven times and the priests blowing the trumpets and the walls come tumbling down at that point and victory is given to the children of Israel. God establishes them as well in some of these earlier battles that we're going to get to as we continue here in the book of Numbers. One of the last duties is found for Moses, really a charge for Moses by the Lord, is to take vengeance on the Midianites for what they had done to Israel in the area of Peor. And that is found in chapter 31. So we're kind of winding down, although we have all of Deuteronomy to get through, where Moses will still be teaching the next generation how they should conduct themselves in the promised land. Moses does not have permission to enter the promised land. So all his job is, his task at this point, is to prepare the next generation to enter into the promised land. So he's been reviewing offerings in Numbers 28. Last week we learned about the daily offerings, the Sabbath day offerings, the uh, new moon offerings, the Passover offering, and the Feast of Weeks, or tabernacles as we like to call it, that all of these new offerings being given, and not new in the sense of they didn't know about these things, but they didn't quite practice everything 
as they should while they were in the wilderness. And so this is a good reminder for the children of Israel of how they were to conduct themselves once they entered the promised land. At one point, God says, I don't want you to conduct yourself as you did in the wilderness, but you're going to be a people, uh, special people called unto me, an example to the nations. And they were not always a good example. Sometimes they were an example in the negative and really example of what we should not do. At other times, they were a great example of what we should do. So we get into Numbers 29. A key verse for me is found in verse 39, where the word tells us, These you shall present to the Lord at your appointed feast, besides your vow offerings and your freewill offerings, as your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, as your drink offerings and your peace offerings. And just wrapping up the responsibility of the children of Israel to present the various offerings. We looked at chapter 28 last week, the daily offerings, the Sabbath offerings, the new moon offerings, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks. And tonight we'll see the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Really going to be looking at the fall feast here in chapter 29, the feast that took place in the seventh month, as we read in verse 1. And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. For you, it is a day of blowing the trumpets. You shall offer a burnt offering as a sweet Aroma to the Lord, one young bull, one ram, seven lambs in the first year without blemish. And their grain offerings shall be fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephod for a bull, two-tenths for a ram, one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also one kid of the goats as a sin offering to make atonement for you besides the burnt offerings with its grain offering for the new moon, the regular burnt offering, with its grain offering and drink offerings according to the ordinance as a sweet aroma and offering made by fire to the Lord. So we're in the fall festivals here. We get to the Feast of Trumpets. For Israel, it's their seventh month established by when they came out of the Promised Land, but actually it is the beginning of Israel's civil calendar, and it's marked with the rising of a new moon and the sounding of the trumpets, And on the first day of that seventh month, they were to kind of have a Sabbath day's rest. They were to do no work. It was to be a holy day for them. Offerings were to be offered. A special offering at this time was one bull. And last week we read of two bulls in each of the feasts. Here it's one young bull, one ram, seven lambs of the first year without blemish, along with their grain, their oil, their drink offerings, also a kid for a sit offering, a kid goat, I should say. We say kid today, we think of little children running around. We don't want to, no child sacrifice here. I almost got that one wrong. Not wrong, I just didn't explain it well. One kid goat is a sin offering. In addition, so they had these days, we looked at this last week, of special offerings that here on the first day of the seventh month, there was the requirement of this special offering of one ram, seven lambs, and one young bull, plus 
a sin offering of one kid goat, but they also still had to offer the other offerings. It was the first of the month, so there was a special offering for the new moon. It was also uh, the daily offerings, one in the morning, one in the evening. They also had to be offered, so they didn't offer less. They just kept adding more. Uh, this festival, the Feast of Trumpets, is Rosh Hashanah. This year it will be on September 16th. And its ultimate fulfill, fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. It reminds us a bit of the rapture, its future. There's the sounding of the trumpets. When the Lord comes for his church, the word of God tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, the Lord himself will descend with a shout with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So these feasts, many of the feasts, represented the work of Jesus Christ, who is the true fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. This particular feast, its fulfillment is still future in the work of Jesus Christ and his second coming. So the Day of Atonement in verses 7 through 11, on the 10th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. So again, like a Sabbath rest, you'll do no works. But here you shall afflict your souls and not do any work. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma, one young bull, one ram, seven lambs of the first year. Be sure they are without blemish. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephod for the bull, two-tenths for the one ram, one-tenth for each of the seventh lambs, also a kid goat as a sin offering, besides the sin offering for atonement, the regular burnt offering, the grain offering, and their drink offering. So Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for Israel's sins, he only did this once a year on Yom Kippur. And he, he entered in with all these other offerings we find kind of consisting with the last offering that we just read about in the Feast of Trumpets. Once again, one young bull, one ram, seven lambs. Also a kid offering for a sin offering. These were all part of that um, monthly feast offerings. But for the priest, in addition to these, there was the sin offering of atonement that would take place. The high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies by the blood that he offered for himself and his sons. And the blood of the bull was offered for himself and his sons. The second, and the blood of one of the kid goats was offered for the people. And the priest would actually, the high priest, only the high priest, would enter into the Holy of Holies first with the blood of the offering that was for himself and his sons to sprinkle on the altar the blood seven times, and then he would come out again and then return with the blood of the offering for the people to sprinkle on the offering 
again seven times. In a sense, it's an annual cleansing of the tabernacle from the, all the sins, the trespass offerings that had been offered throughout the year. This was the day of atonement where God just set the slate clean once again. This year, Yom Kippur will take place on October 5th. Yet there's no temple where atonement can be offered today. Although there is a third temple that the Bible speaks about being built in the future, at some date, Jesus Christ has become the Lamb of God who has atoned for our sins once and for all with his work on the cross. In Hebrews 9.26, it tells us, Then they would have suffered often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the high priest, they would continually have to do this annual offering, the Day of Atonement, every year, the Day of Atonement, the same routine of offering the bull, the ram, the seven lambs, the kid goat, it was an annual thing, but Jesus came and once and for all put away the sins of the world through his offering upon the cross. The Feast of Tabernacles found in verses 12 through 38. And I'm not going to read all of these verses, but we're going to get through a bit of it. The Feast of Booths, uh, Tabernacles, Sukkoth, it reminds us of how God lovingly cared for the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And so on the 15th day of the seventh month, we're still in that, for us, uh, late September, October celebrations. In the se 15th day of the seventh month, you shall make have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. You shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. And you shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thirteen young bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs in their first year. They shall be without blemish. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephod for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, one-tenth for each of the fourteen lambs. Also, one kid goat as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offerings and his grain offerings and drink offerings. So the daily offerings, they always took place. On top of the daily offerings came the special offering for tabernacle, but this would be stretched out for several days. We begin with this grand offering of 13 young bulls, but we also learn that there'll be a Similar offering, offering each of the next uh, seven days, for seven days, diminishing one of the bulls going from 13 to 12 to 11 to 10, all the way down to seven. And we learn about that in verses 17 through 32. But on the eighth and final day, it was to be treated as a Sabbath rest. So, so far here for Israel in the seventh month of the year, they had had four, if you're keeping counts, I am. They've had four 
uh, days, not including the Sabbath days. These days could, like any month, uh, the first can fall on a Monday or a Tuesday or Wednesday. It can fall on a Sunday or a Saturday. But they had these four special days where they were to do no extra work besides in the month of October, you might have four, sometimes five Sundays where they would have a Sabbath rest. And so they could have maybe four or eight Sabbath-like days. I think the Lord really, uh, in these spring and fall feasts, really trying to get the people to slow down, to take rest, to refresh their bodies, and more so refresh their relationship with the Lord. I think sometimes we get so busy, we get going so much that we don't take time to spend time to wait upon the Lord. And and God kind of wrote it into the uh, constitution, we might say, of Israel, that they had to take these days and offer rest. Besides the offerings that were given, on the eighth day, In verse 35, we pick up 35 through 38. On the eighth day, you shall have a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. One bull, one ram, seven lambs in their first year without blemish and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bull, for the ram, for the lambs by their number according to the ordinance Also, one goat as a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. So this year, the booths or Sukkoth will be held between September 29th through October 6th. And it really reminds us of Jesus. So they're talking about a time when they would build booths, uh, tents. They would kind of camp out with the children to remind them what it was like for their ancestors when they were in the wilderness. They would make these shacks, temporary uh, places where they would dwell. And in Israel, they had flat roofs. Often they would build these maybe on the roof of their house. Maybe others who would come in to worship in Jerusalem would have these booths kind of built all around the city. But it reminds us that Jesus put on flesh. He put a tent of flesh upon his body. As John 1.14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld his glory full of grace and truth, the only begotten of the Father. So Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He, he put on a tent of flesh. He tabernacled himself among us that he might represent us before his father 39 through 40 closing out this chapter these you shall present to the lord at your appointed feast besides your vows vowed offerings your free will offerings as your burnt offerings your grain offerings as the drink offerings and your peace offerings so moses told the children of israel everything just as the lord had commanded him so Two chapters, and we looked at one tonight, one last week, Numbers 28 and 29, really rehearsing the daily, the monthly, the Sabbath offerings, but also the spring feasts like Passover, 
and the fall feasts, like the Day of Atonement and the other feasts that surrounded those, Pentecost and, and the Feast of Tabernacles. But these were to really cause the people twice a year to gather to wherever the tabernacle ultimately uh, settled the tabernacle and the temple being built in Jerusalem. They would come for these five annual offerings or feasts where they would worship the Lord and uh, the people would be reminded of in each of these feasts, there was always a, a sin offering offered. They'd be reminded not only of their sin, the price of sin, but also of the fellowship that God desired with the people. God is preparing the children of Israel to enter into the promised land. And there is also a reminder that these things were going to be different in the land. God was going to uh, cause them to conduct themselves differently than they were in the wilderness. But also these offerings... The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, So let no one judge you because judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. These things were merely shadows of that which Christ was going to fulfill. It caused me to think about how people view faith in our own land. Uh, you have these festivals where God required the children of Israel to come and to worship before him. And we have similar things in the church today. We might have these annual feasts like Easter or Christmas where you might have some people come. And that might be the only time they ever attend church throughout the whole year. And maybe it's not even on both days. Uh, there is another one. It's not technically a Christian celebration, but it ranks right there with Easter and Christmas. It's Mother's Day, not Father's Day. I kind of take offense to that one, but Mother's Day. Mom can get their kids to come to church. Maybe they don't come on Easter and maybe not on Christmas, but mom can get them to come on Mother's Day. Got to take care of mom. And we have people like that. Maybe in Israel you have people who only showed up on the feast days there and ultimately in Jerusalem because they felt like they were compelled to, like they had to. And then you have others who maybe their commitment is a little more. They're not really weekly attendees, but they show up maybe 12 times a year. There was a survey that was done last year and one of the questions was about regular church attendance and i believe it was in the like 20 to 35 year old age gap and what was deemed regular church attendance was showing up once a month i don't know if you know in our home if i only came home once a month if lily would think too much of me if i only showed up once a month Hey, honey, good to see you this month. Be back next month sometime. Not sure which day I'll come. Well, there are those who come weekly, those who come whenever the church doors are opened. As a pastor, I kind of have learned to 
count on the last two groups, those who come maybe every Sunday, those who come whenever the church doors are open. But even with these last two groups, you know, the church wouldn't function without them, but they're in danger of sometimes serving without actually worshiping. And that's to be our true purpose. It's my prayer that we would worship Jesus in such a way that we are presenting our gifts, our offerings, our service to the Lord through our local churches, but also in our community, presenting ourselves to others as living sacrifices, as Jesus has called us to do, as Paul uh, beseech the Romans, saying in Romans 12:1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So 28 and 29, talking about the annual feast. In Numbers 30, it's kind of a, a shorter chapter, especially in the book of Numbers, only 16 verses. But don't worry, chapter 31 makes up for it because it's kind of a long chapter. So we might get off on this one a little shorter. But it's all about making vows or oaths or uh, agreements. Somebody swears an oath. And how, in verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Basically, chapter 30, God wants us to be a people who keep our word. So if we tell the Lord or we tell someone we're going to do something, we should follow through. Here in this chapter, he names uh, a man, a young woman who is not married, but still in her father's home. And I kind of put these together, but a widow or a divorced woman, because the text puts them together. And then we have a young wife. And, and it kind of splits with the wives as well one who is just married and one who's been married for a while. And it's all about making uh, oaths or vows to the Lord. And Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel. In verse 1, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So if or when, it doesn't say that you have to, but if or when a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath, he binds himself by some agreement, he is bound to keep that vow or that oath which he has sworn. So if a man makes a vow, nadir is the Hebrew word. It's only found 25 times in the Old Testament it basically means a solemn promise to God. Think of, I don't know how often they do this in courtrooms anymore, if they even pull out Bibles anymore, but just think of how courtrooms definitely used to be. I put your hand on the Bible, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's kind of that sense of the nadir, of all that's made to the Lord, a solemn promise to God. And then you have those who have sworn a vow. It's Shabbat. 
In the Hebrew, it means to seven oneself. So it's like repeating an oath to yourself seven times. Seven, if you don't know, is the number of completion in the Bible. So it's like the perfect uh, swearing. You're committing to whatever it is. It doesn't say exactly what it is. You have sworn to keep something then you have to keep that thing. That he, Hebrew word for swearing in that sense is to seven oneself or to repeat a vow to yourself seven times. Like Psalm 119, 105, I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. And the same word there, Shabbat, sworn. I have sworn uh, seventh myself, Lord, I'm going to keep your righteous judgments. So if a man, a Jewish boy is bar mitzvah, when he is 13 years old, that bar mitzvah means one to whom the commandments applied. A girl, either 13 or 14, it's called a bat mitzvah. And it's basically the same thing. Uh, ceremonies might be different, uh, certainly uh, they're held differently. We saw a young boy being bar mitzvahed at the Wailing Wall when we were in Israel, there in Jerusalem. And the sad thing about, sad to us, uh, to me it was, is that at the Wailing Wall, there's the guy side and the gal side and a fence in between them. And so as their son was being bar mitzvahed, you saw the women, mom and the grandparents, parents, grandmother, grandmother uh, on both sides, I would say, the female family members or friends standing, looking over the fence to watch their son be in bar mitzvah. Kind of sad, but that is their custom uh, to this day in Israel for the Orthodox Jews. But basically it means that the young boy, the young girl are personally obligated to fulfill God's law they have come to that age of accountability. Now think about that. They're bar mitzvahed, and it's basically meaning at 13 years old, this boy is able to answer for himself before the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth. And we live in a society here in the United States where we're thinking, you might have a son who's 25 years old, and you're thinking, I hope he grows up one day. <laughs> and they're somewhere with... Girls, they're saying they kind of mature at age 23 to 24, guys at 26 to 28, and uh, really talking about the responsibility that they have before God. So if a man makes a vow, a pledge, even a young boy at 13, after he's been bar mitzvahed, then he is responsible. The girl, though, will discover is a little different. But it doesn't say anything about the boy as we continue on. Solomon had this in Ecclesiastes 5, 4 and 5. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure for in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So even in the Old Testament, and we'll read about this in the New Testament, better just to simply don't make the vow to the Lord, because you might get yourself in trouble. But in the Old Testament, Solomon, if you do make the vow, you better pay it. Three through five, a teenage girl. This would best fit that. 
as I was thinking about this, it says a woman, but he's still living. She's still living in her father's house. So she's still in her youth. If a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while her in her father's house in her youth. So we could probably say by a teenager. Her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself and her father holds his peace. Then all her vows shall stand. Every agreement which she has bound herself shall stand. But if the father overrules her on the day that he hears it, then none of her vows nor agreements by which she had bound herself shall stand. And the Lord will release her because her father has overruled. So she's still under the authority of dad while she's in the home. Maybe she's been bat mitzvahed already. The boy, it doesn't say this about the young boy. If he's been bat mitzvahed, He's considered responsible before God. He has to keep his vow, even if he's 15 years old. Dad can't overrule it. But the girl, if she's 15 or 16, 17, still in the home, then he can overrule it or he can let it stand. And so the authority comes upon the father in this case. If the young girl gets married, she's made a vow while she's been in her father's household, but now she takes a husband, verses 6 through 9. And while bound to her vow by a rash utterance from her lips by which she had bound herself, and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears it, then her vow shall stand, and her agreement by which she is bound shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he doesn't have to hear her make the vow. He just got to, at some point, hears about the commitment that she made, and he can say yea or nay. If her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took and what she uttered with her lips and that which she had bound herself, and the Lord will release her. Also, talking about the widow and the divorced woman, also any vow of a widow or divorced woman by which she had bound herself shall stand against her. So, the wife, the husband, has that authority just as the father did. But a widow or divorced woman with no husband over them, then they are their authority. And what they bind themselves, an oath, a vow that they take, that then they are bound to it and it must stand. And so there's this sense of the family structure being played out here in this chapter where uh, the father is deemed the head of the household and then there's the wife and the children here talking about the authority. In Romans 7, 2, Paul brings this up. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband died, she is released from the law of her husband. So as long as the husband lives. And then a vow, an agreement, uh, a married woman. And so this last one, the best I could kind of sense it in verses uh, six through eight, technically, is a gal who takes a husband, but she had this vow that she had made. Maybe something her dad said, yeah, you can hold to that commitment. But the husband overrules the father because now they are husband and wife. But here, it's a woman who has been in the household of her husband. She is married. 
if she vows, verse 10, in her husband's household or bound herself by an agreement or an oath. Her husband heard it and he made no response to her, did not overrule her. Then her vow shall stand and every agreement by which she have bound herself shall stand. If her husband truly made a vow, made them void on the day that he heard them, then whatever proceeds from her lips concerning her vow, concerning her agreement binding to her, it shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord shall release her. Every vow, every binding oath to afflict her so her husband may confirm it or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response, whatever, to her from the day to day, then he confirms all her vows and her agreement that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he makes them void after he heard them, he shall bear the guilt. So now he kind of takes it back. I didn't get that until right now. It took me a while to get this one. So he had already heard them. He kind of let it go by. She's bound to them. And now he changes his mind. Now he's going to bear the guilt for changing his mind. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife between a father and his daughter and his youth in his father's in her father's house so his final group a wife makes a vow the husband has the opportunity to overrule or to let it stand if he lets it stand and then changes his mind later let's just say that suddenly whatever commit she made he realizes this is really going to cost us if he overrules it then he's going to bear the guilt one of the examples I thought of, of a woman making a commitment and the husband letting that commitment stand was with Elkanah and Hannah. If you remember, Elkanah had two wives and the one wife was fruitful, had many children at this point and Hannah was barren. And every year they would go up to the tabernacle to worship the Lord and Elkanah loved Hannah, but she had no son, no daughter, no children, and her heart ached to have children, to have a son especially. And every year that they would go up, Elkanah gave Hannah, the one that had no children, a double portion of gifts to offer at the offering. So he showed his love toward, in fact, he was just, totally naive because he really couldn't understand it. In a sense, if you read the account from 1 Samuel chapter 1, it seems that Elkanah was kind of saying to Hannah, look, you have me. What need do you have for a son? You know, you got the best husband in the world. Why do you want a son so bad? One year, she was weeping and praying, but no words were coming out of her mouth, so much so that Eli, the high priest, thought she was drunk before the altar of the Lord. Uh, altar of the Lord, And she explained to him, no, I'm just, my soul is burdened. And Eli spoke a prophecy over her that she would bear a son. She had pledged to the Lord, if you give me a son, then I will give him back to you all the days of his life. So she had made that commitment to the Lord. If you give me a son, 
I dedicate him back to you all the days of his life. So what I want us to see, she made the vow. Elkanah apparently did not overrule that vow. He could have said, I don't want you dedicating our son to the Lord all the days of his life. So no, but he let it stand. And in fact, he continued to let that commitment stand as we read in 1 Samuel 1, 21 through 23. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, not until the child is winged. Then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. When she talked about dedicating him to the Lord, she meant he was staying at the tabernacle. So the thought is when a child is weaned right around the age of three years old. She did not go up to the temple for that annual worship until her son was possibly at the age of three. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. And then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And so Elkanah let the commitment, the oath, stand. Do what's best for you. But then he said, only let the Lord establish his word. Make sure you follow through. And so that's a great example of making this vow, this clear to the uh, commitment to the Lord. So the Bible is clear that if we make a vow, we make an oath by saying something like, I swear on the Bible. God actually expects us to keep that which we have sworn. But also the Bible does not. We've already read one verse of scripture from Ecclesiastes. Let me go back to that. When you make a vow, Ecclesiastes 5, 4 and 5, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So there's that sense of better not to make the commitment before God if you don't have the ability to keep the commitment. And we find Jesus in Matthew 5, 37 saying, basically, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. So Jesus is saying, don't, don't swear at all. Just let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. James adds to this, James 5, 12, let your yes be yes, your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. So keep it simple. Yes, no is good enough. And yet making those commitments to God can be huge. Just think. And I, I didn't think about that until I was just sharing about Hannah and Elkanah. If he would have overruled her vow, she promised to give her son to the Lord all the days of his life. Her son became a priest and prophet and leader over the nation of Israel for 40 years. What if Elkanah would have said, forget it. You're not sending our son to live at the tabernacle. He's going to stay here with us. Then they would have lost one of their great judges of Israel. And also, I have a pretty 
large example of this in my own family with my dad. My dad was in his mid-30s. He had a stroke. I went to sleep as a young boy, maybe seven or eight years old. Um, not too clear on the exact dates I could find out from my sisters, but it's just never locked in my mind because I was so young. All I know is that I woke up the next morning and I didn't see my dad for six months. He had a stroke and they took him to Victory Hospital in Waukegan. And they took him from Victory Hospital to uh, Cook County Hospital where he stayed until he had heart surgery, replaced a valve in his heart. And uh, it was pioneer days of heart surgery. And there were so many things at play during that time. He was there for six months. And twice they had prepped him for surgery. He had the universal blood type. I have the same O negative. So our blood's good for anyone, but you have to get O neg negative blood back. So twice they had prepped him, prepared him for surgery. And there was major accident. And they just came in and said, sorry, John, we have to postpone. We needed to use the blood supply that we had set aside for you for this emergency surgery. So that had to be kind of mentally just fatiguing. And I don't know when dad prayed this prayer, but he did prior to his surgery. The prayer went something like this. God, if you will make me as good a man as I am today, then I will serve you all the days of my life. I like to call that kind of prayer, let's make a deal prayer. He's in trouble. They're going to cut his chest open. They didn't do it that much back in the 1960s. Not like they do today. It's pretty routine today. You're in and out pretty quick. And today's scars are pretty small. His scar started right under his right breast and went all the way to the very beginning of the left side of his back. And so they opened him up. But that scar that was probably two feet long, maybe, that ran across his chest and around his back. About two years later, it was on a Sunday morning, he was shaving before going to church on that Sunday morning. Didn't have a shirt on, probably just got out of the shower, getting ready to shave. He looked in the mirror, he saw this thick, and it was always a thick scar, this raised scar running across his chest. And my dad would say, that became Noah's rainbow for me. And the Lord spoke to his heart and said, I've kept my word, now you keep yours. And that morning, when dad went to church, he went forward, he surrendered his life to the ministry to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. But another notable thing about that morning, while dad was being called by the Lord when he was standing, getting ready to shave. That same morning, the guy who would be his worship leader, we would call them today, also went forward. His name was Doyle and surrendered his life to the ministry. They ended up becoming a, a team and they pastored a church. Well, dad was the pastor. Doyle was the worship leader, but over in Zion, Illinois. God was working in both the men's heart on the very same day. 
and that he was calling them to the work to do. The second thing I remember about dad retelling this story about 20 years later, dad would tell this story. He would, he would say that I, I made this prayer, God, if you make me a good man as I am today, I will serve you all the days of my life. And 20 years later, he said, God did me one better because he made me a better man. They've always interested me because 20 years later, dad's health was failing. He would, only a few years from that time, die in heart surgery once again, never come off the surgery table to be with his family again. But no longer was he concerned with the physical. He understood that God made him a better man spiritually. And God can do that to us. Bottom line, God encourages us, don't make oaths, don't make vows if you're not able to keep them. Better yes, better no, than to make a promise that you can't keep. But if you decide to make that promise, one day you might be looking in the mirror and the Lord might be saying to you, I've kept my bargain, now you keep yours. As he did for my dad, many years ago. Know this, no matter the situation, we need to learn to trust in Jesus who is able, Ephesians 3.20, to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask and think according to the powers that work in us. And Father, we thank you for your great grace. For the teaching of your word tonight, help us to be sensitive, Lord, of the things that we've learned about tonight of taking time to fellowship with you, those special times. For us in the Christian church, Lord, it is Christmas. It's Easter, and Easter coming up, uh, beginning at the beginning of next month, really, the Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, both happening the first two weeks there in April. Lord, these are special days that we should gather together to worship you like the children of Israel did with their feast days, times where they come to celebrate the great work of the Lord in their lives and times when we come together in the same fashion. And also, Lord, in these commitments that we learned about uh, a father and his household and the authority that he has over his children, over a wife, but more so, Lord, the commitments that we can make either uh, male or female. Lord, if we do make such an oath, such a pledge to you, help us to keep such things. For we know if we do so, it's for your glory and our good. But on the other side of that, Lord, Scripture just reminds us, let your yes be yes and your no, no. So, Lord, help us to not make any rash commitments. But, Father, we pray that we would be in your hands, knowing that you always do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could think or ask. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you do. In the name of Jesus, amen. That God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.